Hi, folks. This is Brad Watson, pastor at Nexus Church. We are glad you have found our sermon podcast and that you're interested in our teachings. If you've ever considered financially supporting our work at Nexus Church, you can do that at nexuschurch.ca slash give. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. It's time to embark on a new series. It's going to take us all the way to Easter, and I'm very I think I say this all the time, but I'm for real this time. I'm really excited about this because this has been our year in the tensions, exploring the tensions. And as part of that, I want to take some time to explore the tensions we often feel with the church and the history of our faith. For those looking to... um, cast stones at Christianity and the church, there's plenty of rocks to choose from. The Crusades, the Inquisition, Catholic versus Protestant wars, slavery, sexism. Even today, the church continues to be rocked by abusive power and sex scandals, even as we reckon with uh, the church's role in residential schools here in Canada. The church is often seen or accused of being not equitable, lacking kindness, being too judgmental, too strict sexually, being closed-minded, anti-science, at times on the wrong side of history. Is it possible to be of the Jesus path, a Christian, without feeling a sense of shame? Can you be a Christian today without feeling like you need to apologize for it? Some total, has Christianity, the Christian faith, the church, been good or bad for the world? Well, for the series, what I want to do is I want to try out my best Malcolm Gladwell and do a little revisionist history. I want to take us on a journey into what I think are the overlooked and misunderstood aspects of Christian history and how the cross has shaped our world for good and for ill And normally, I don't uh, put up uh, my research, but it feels important this time that I'm not just pulling things out of the air. Uh, Lots of stuff has been sitting around for a while, and so I've thrown it into this collection, made this this series, and I'm excited about it. Um, And I want this series to be provocative, unsettling. I want it to be challenging. But most importantly... By the end, I hope you feel full of hope, perhaps a tall order. But in the spirit of provocation, let's begin with a thought experiment, shall we, about creeds. Little thought experiment. And uh, listen, for this one, I don't need a show of hands, okay? You can do this thought experiment in the, in the comfortable confines of your own head. So you can just think about this yourself. But what I want to do is this, is I want to show you two different creeds, two statements of beliefs, and I want to ask which of them you can sign off on, which of them you believe more, which of these creeds do you think, yes, that I could sign the dotted line. Now, before we get to them really quickly about a creed, there's two ways to understand creeds. The first is uh, that it's something we mentally assent to, have high confidence in, believe to be true. Uh, I believe a triangle has three sides, something like that. I'm very confident of that. The other way to understand statements or beliefs is to um, understand and see them as language of devotion and allegiance. 
I'll give you an example. This week at the dinner table, for some reason, one of my children asked Kristen, said, Mom, do you believe Dad is attractive? <laughs> Interesting. I was very interested in her response. She said, yeah, of course I do. And my child said, yeah, but like how much? <laughs> They're all into the whole Taylor Swift, Travis, Kelsey thing, and so it's like, as good looking as, as Travis. And Kristen said, I believe he's the most handsome man in the world. Now, we all know I'm not the most handsome man in the world. But when you say something like that about your partner, it's the language of devotion. I'm devoted to this person, so I, I, I believe certain things about them, even if they might not be factually true. I'm devoted to them. Or, or just two weeks ago, I was having lunch with a friend, and they were showing me pictures of their kids. And I said, oh, your kids are cute. And this friend of mine looked at me dead seriously and said, yes. I believe they're the cutest kids in the world. Now, it takes a lot of courage to look another father in the eye and say something like that, but what, what is that? It's the language of devotion. We are devoted to them, and so we believe certain things. So there's two ways to understand creeds and beliefs. One can be, I'm intellectually certain of this, but other times it's about devotion. I am devoted to this even if I can't quite work out the details. Either way, thought experiment. Which creed do you believe in more? Let's start with the oldest of creeds, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Think about it. Imagine wouldn't do this, but imagine we said, if you want to be at Nexus, you got to sign off on this. Got to sign that. Could you do it? Think about that. Now, let me show you a different creed, see how it goes. I believe in the equal moral status of every human being, no matter their rank, race, religion, gender, or sexuality. I believe a society should be judged by the way it treats its weakest members. I believe that the powerful have no right to force themselves on others. I believe in education for all and the power of education to transform a society. I believe in science and its ability to help us understand the world and improve our lives. I believe that persons are not property and that each of us should be in control of our own lives. I believe in moral improvement over time and the work of reforming society of former ills and evils. Could you sign off on that one? Which one do you believe in more? I think we, there they are, next to each other there. If you had to say, you know what, I believe this one more than the other, maybe you can't sign off on either, maybe you can sign off on both. Think about it for a moment, and again, I don't want a show of hands. I'm almost scared which way it would go, but an internal inventory of your creedal affiliations. 
Make up your mind there, but here's my big assertion of this whole series that's going to take us to Easter. The contemporary creed on the right would not exist without the creed on the left. Nor would it even be possible for that creed on the right to exist without the first creed, the Apostles' Creed. My assertion is this, the second creed only exists because the first one created it. It would be impossible for that second creed to find any traction because the first one birthed it. My hunch is that in this room, a lot of us had a much time, much easier time signing off on the second one. But without Christianity, those truths do not exist. And I can tell some of us are thinking, ah, whoa, 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 hold on. That second creed there, those are really just statements of the obvious. They're self-evident. I want to show you throughout the course of the history that nothing could be further from the truth. They're not in any way self-evident. There's nothing self-evident about them. And it takes as much faith to believe in the creed on the right as it does in the left. And I get some of you maybe thinking, God, this is garbage. When are we talking about the bad stuff of the church? Don't worry, we'll get there. We're going to get there. But this is the new series, and I told you I wanted to play the role of provocateur because I want us to, to wrestle with our own faith and history Aren't you going to get to the bad stuff? I'll tell you what, we're going to get really into the bad stuff. Crusades, Inquisition, is the church anti-science? What happened with that Galileo guy? We'll get to all that stuff, but I want to begin here. Without the church, without the Jesus path and its 2,000-year history, none of those contemporary beliefs exist. None of them. Glenn Scrivener writes this, the extraordinary impact of Christianity is seen in the fact that you don't notice it. You already hold particularly Christianish views, and the fact that you think of these values as natural, obvious, or universal shows how profoundly the Christian revolution has shaped you. And I think, ah, I don't like that, but it shaped us. You ever have one of those moments? My, my dad, he's not here, is he? No. Strange little fella, but when he got, <laughs> he is a strange, oh, he's going to listen, I'm going to get in trouble. Um, when we were growing up, when he got mad at us, he would do the weirdest thing. I don't know if he was trying to hold himself back from, like, beating us or what it was, but when he got mad, he would bite his thumb. Would you get shut up? Like that, that's what he would do. And we've made jokes about it for years. Like, who bites their thumb? That's so ridiculous. And then this week, my dog destroyed my son's shoes, and I, I did it. I was like, I don't do it, dog. I was like, oh, no. I'm my father. Strange little fella. I don't Oh, we're shaped by certain things. And sometimes it's this stark realization, like, oh, no. Is this possible? Is this true? You know, to understand just how thoroughly drenched we are in the waters of the Jesus path, we, we have to travel back in time to a world without the Jesus path. And Greek philosophy, which developed hundreds of years before Jesus showed up on the scene, it's still the measuring stick in philosophy, right? I've heard it said, 
in history that all thinking is really just a footnote on Aristotle and Plato. Such is the giant impact of their minds. What was self-evident in the ancient world? Aristotle, for that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. Or Plato, nature herself intimates that it is just for the better to have more than the worse, the more powerful than the weaker. Justice consists in the superior ruling over and having more than the inferior. I'm going to go a whole lot deeper with this stuff later on in the series, but notice how completely backwards that sounds to us. And even still today, we would say these are the giants of philosophy. There wasn't a Greek, a Roman, or anyone living in antiquity who would have quibbled with those statements. And yet these words are the polar opposite of our own modern thinking. For us, justice is the equalizing of persons. In the classical world, justice was reinforcing inequality because that's what nature intended. To Plato and Aristotle, one thing was self-evident and obvious, difference. People are different. Some people are born to be tools. They're born to be slaves. And when people say, oh, wait, are you saying that Plato and Aristotle defended slavery? I'm saying no, because to defend slavery, there would have to be someone critiquing it, and there was no one critiquing it. It was just a given. Of course, this is the way the world works. Everything before the Christian faith shows up in the world was built on an economy of slavery. Everything, politics, religion, everything, according to the ancients, was a self-evident truth that not all people are created equal. Larry Seidentop has said, at the core of ancient thinking was the assumption of natural inequality. Rodney Stark, in his uh, book on the history of Christianity, he writes this, all known societies, all known, above the very primitive level have been slave societies. Nature itself taught this. There's difference. Some people are faster, fitter, stronger, smarter, better than others. Some races, the Greeks and the Romans, they're better than others. This was natural and obvious. Nature made this very obvious, but it wasn't just nature. It was in the guiding creation myths of the day. What we find is that one of these myths is not like the other. You go back to the Babylonian creation myth, the Enema Elish, I think that's how it's pronounced. And how does humanity come about? How is it created? The guard Marduk slays Tiamat, whose body is split into sky and land, and 300 gods are assigned to the heavens, 600 to the land, and then humanity is created. Our purpose is to toil of the gods. The toil of the gods will be laid on humans. From King, King Uz's blood, Ea created mankind on whom he imposed the service of the gods to set the gods free. Ancient myth, what is the story of humanity? Our story is violence, war, bloodshed, and our purpose is slavery to the gods. Mesopotamia, same thing in their creation story. Create primeval man that he may bear the yoke. Let him bear the yoke. I can't say yoke. Let man bear the load of the gods. 
And then there's Greek creation myth. My son's all into Greek mythology right now, some book he's reading, but it's fascinating. How does humanity come about? Prometheus is tasked with creating humans. We're made from dust. The god Athena breathes life into us. And then Prometheus steals fire and gives it to humans. But Zeus ain't happy about this. And Zeus punishes Prometheus by chaining him to a rock and then an eagle comes and eats his liver, and then the liver grows back again, and the eagle eats it again, and then it grows back, and then it eats it again, on and on and on and on. The idea is what? Our origins, who we are fundamentally as humans, chaotic, violent, death. Rome then emerges. They keep the same gods, essentially, but change the names. Greek god Mars fathers all of humanity, and gives birth to the founders of Rome, the great city, Romulus and Remus. And how does that happen? The god Mars rapes the unsuspecting mortal, Rhea, Sylvia. Humanity is found on war, bloodshed, violence, war, and rape. That's how the pre-Christian mind thought of the world, thought of us as, as humans. And I get it. Some of us are probably thinking, but who cares, Brad? That's like thousands of years ago. These are ancient myths. We've progressed beyond that. We no longer have gods and mythic tales. Instead, what we have is something equally as silly. And I chickened out. I was going to play you a Pete Holmes clip this morning, but it has so many swear words in it, and I've already got myself in enough trouble this year. I don't want more emails but I am going to post it online because it's that good and it's so precise. But I'll give you the non-funny version of it. Essentially, in his worldview, there's two types of people. The God people say, God created the world. And then there's the nothing people. They say, nothing created the universe, which according to Pete Holmes is the funniest guess. Nothing. Nothing. And the same nothing people who make fun of the God people say that when we die, nothing happens. Nothing created us, and nothing happens when we die, which according to Pete Holmes is really us merging with our creator at the end. In much stronger language, he says it. But the idea is this. Nothing created us. Nothing happens when we die. And here's the thing. For people today who believe that they don't actually have the courage to go all the way with it. Because if nothing created us and nothing happens when we die, then nothing that happens here means anything. But right, it's the Christians who are holding on to a crutch, of course. So on the one hand is a contemporary myth that says we're some sort of cosmic accident, meaningless, in a world before Christianity, ripe with myths that who we are and what we were created for is chaos, violence, bloodshed, rape, war, all of the above. But one of these myths is not like the other. You ever had someone say, this book changed my life? It always kind of makes me laugh when somebody, this book changed my life. I can tell you with great certainty that there are three stories that did change your life. And all of them are asinine and foolish. 
Let's start with the creation myth that sounds drastically different than anything we have heard before or since. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. The image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. In the ancient world, this myth from some fringe people on the corner of one empire or the other was complete foolishness. Notice how vastly, incredibly different it is from any story heard before this time. Notice what is absent. The world isn't created out of violence or war or chaos or rape. There's no bloodshed, no violence. And notice the status of humanity. We're not created as slaves to the gods to toil and do their work. We're created in the image of God. And we are the ones tasked with ruling over. We will not be ruled over. We're tasked with ruling over, being stewards. We're so familiar with this story, we don't understand how it changed everything. Everything. Male and female are created in the very image of God, image bearers that have dignity and a status that no human story had ever thought about before. The story has changed the world as we know it. In fact, I would say, without hyperbole, there are three stories that change the axis our world spins on. This creation story, the incarnation, and the crucifixion of Jesus. And if you think this creation story sounded foolish, imagine how foolish the crucifixion story sounded. What does Paul say? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. I don't have time to get into the absolute horror of crucifixion. They say that the Assyrians were actually the worst when it came to torturing people. They they perfected impalement methods so that you could impale someone and them there on a stake for weeks. So Rome wasn't the absolute worst, but crucifixion is just a brutal, brutal, so utterly horrific and brutal that in Rome it was reserved for only slaves. Cicero, considered one of humanity's greatest orators, writes about crucifixion. He's a Roman citizen. You can hear his eloquent language here. Wretched is the loss of one's good name in the public courts. Wretched, too, a monetary fine exacted from one's property. And wretched is exile. But the executioner, the veiling of heads, and the very word cross, let them all be far removed from not only the bodies of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. The mere mention of them is unworthy a Roman citizen and a free man. For is the most miserable and most painful punishment appropriate to slaves alone. It is crime to bind a Roman citizen, to scourge him is a wickedness, to put him to death is almost parricide. What shall I say of crucifying him? So guilty an action cannot by any possibility be adequately expressed by any name bad enough for it. And Paul comes along and starts preaching this man 
who died the shameful death of a slave, he's God. And the Roman world was always amused by these silly stories coming out of Palestine. They had the most, they're hilarious, their stories. Their God made all of humanity in the image of the vine, but just when they thought it couldn't get any more bizarre, another foolish, asinine story emerges from the region. This God had become flesh and died a slave's death. Just think about it this way. Imagine somebody said today, there's an Iraqi mechanic and he was taken to Abu Ghraib and he was tortured and died there and we think he's God. We'd be like, <laughs> okay. But within 300 years, these asinine, foolish stories had toppled an empire. And within 1,700 years, it would so shape our minds and imaginations, we can no longer recognize a world without them. But these are impossible beliefs. My guess is all of us would sign off on this creed. Of course we would. It seems obvious. And listen, this series isn't just about how the Jesus path has changed everything, how it gave us that. It'll also be about how the church, time and time again, especially mixed with power, how it loses sight of these stories. The church, Ronald Rollheiser, this was a saving image for me, describes the church as always and forever Christ hung between two thieves. And in the church, we get both the best and the worst of humanity. That's been my experience. In the church... And the process of being entrusted with these stories has been party to some of the greatest evils in history. And I don't want to gloss over our tensions with the church. I want to take them even more seriously. The crusade, Spanish Inquisition. Was Hitler a Christian? I'm going to cover it all. But what might surprise some of us, disturb us, maybe all of the above, is that without it, we don't get this. We're going to have to do some revisionist history and re-examine the stories we've been told, the beliefs we hold dear, and ask the band to come and close. But I'm trying in this season of ministry to name the zeitgeist, the age we live in. Here's my theory. I believe in the future, if not now, in the West, there will be three types of people. First, the intellectually honest with nihilism. And they'll say, that's what we've evolved to. The truth is nihilism and nothing matters. And we'll stop caring. I'll be one group of people in the West. The second group of people will be the entertained and numbed. And because they'll have trouble naming the general malaise in them because they've come to believe in nihilism but don't want to expressly say it, but this general malaise will be there, and because, because we know that deep down inside, all we'll look to do is entertain and numb ourselves. More TV, more sports, just numb it, just numb that feeling. And then the final group will be Jesus path people. Say, so that seems like a big exaggeration. I... I think it's coming if it isn't already there. 
And so this series is going to take us to some strange, fun places. Taylor Swift, we've got to talk about her next week. That's coming up. But all I know is this. One thing is perfectly clear to me. 2,000 years ago, the world was a place of sheer brutality. And these three stories were considered asinine and foolish. And 2,000 years later, everything has changed. The question is, how did we get from there to here?